I'm really glad to be back this morning in this study through the Minor Prophets. I was Obviously, I was away for a couple of weeks in London. And by the way, our, uh, our, our plan is to go back to London. We have an ongoing relationship with uh, ministry relationship in London. So our plan is to go back. It's coming spring break and potentially again a second time next summer. So I say that to you now, saying I know it seems like a long way away now, but it's not. So go ahead and be, uh, go ahead and be praying now for the Lord to provide a way for you to go, either to London with us, spring break or summer or somewhere. Um, go ahead and decide now. This is what I I'm aiming to do. This is this is how I'm aiming to to spend my um, spring break or summer for the Lord. Be thinking about. The next go-arounds, even now. But anyway, having been gone two weeks, I know that uh, Clint Barthel talked for me last week, did a good job in my absence, but I'm glad to be back. And we're slowly but surely making our way through these 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. In, in old, old times, they very often would have been bound together in one volume called the Twelve, or the Book of the Twelve. And uh, we've already looked at a number of them, in fact, uh, we're well over the halfway mark. Only have after today, only have three more. So today we're coming to the to the shortest of them by far. In fact, the shortest book of the whole Old Testament today, Obadiah. Obadiah is the minor prophet for our study today. If you're looking for it in your Bible still, um, I'll know you didn't read it ahead of time. And it's between Amos and Jonah. So it's just 21 verses long. So it's easily short enough for us to read the whole thing together before we dive into it and study it. So if you found it, let's read it together. I'll read it aloud. You follow along, beginning in verse 1, and read the whole thing. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers come by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat 
over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau. Those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and clear and necessary word. This isn't just the word of a man named Obadiah. This is your everlasting, eternal word through him. As Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21, when we come to the scriptures, we are reading the words of men who spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul told Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us for that reason. So we recognize your word as that. It, it is that, regardless of how we come to it. It just is that objectively. So knowing that, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Give us minds to understand what we just read. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we see here. Not just know it or see it. Give us wills to obey whatever it may lead us to do, however it is we must respond. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, like we've done uh, each of these weeks <clears throat> studying through these minor prophets, our desire and our goal is to see how, these, uh, how each one points us forward to Christ and points us forward incrementally to the gospel. Why? Why, why, why are we approaching it that way? Because the New Testament teaches us to read the Old Testament that way. Um, the New Testament teaches us how to read the Old Testament. Uh, and over and over again, the New Testament tells us that's how we ought to approach it. No matter what text we come to uh, in, in the Old Testament, that whenever God was uh, inspiring the writing of the Old Testament, whether it's a, a narrative of, of creation or the flood or, the, or kings, whether it's a narrative or a, a, a psalm of poetry, or a prophecy, or whatever it is, he was, he was 
uh, inspiring that writing in its own time with a greater goal, and that is to point us forward to Christ. That's what the New Testament tells us repeatedly. We've seen that's how Paul opens his letter to the Romans when he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which, which what? This gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so that couldn't be any clearer. The gospel message, something about it, was promised beforehand. Where? In Scripture. Where? In the prophets. And, and he says in the very next verse and on the screen, this gospel was concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And on that note, Jesus himself, more than once, twice in fact, in Luke 24, on two different occasions in that same chapter, talking to his disciples, said the same thing. Talking to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, in Luke 24, says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted them in all the scriptures of things concerning himself. So, on the authority of Jesus himself, in all the prophets, there are things concerning Jesus himself. Later on in that same chapter, he's talking to the rest of his disciples. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I'm still with you, that everything written about me Jesus says, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, when he says law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms, law, prophets, Psalms, that's shorthand for the whole thing. The whole Old Testament is, is about him, written about him, he says. But to our uh, specific instance, the prophets are written about him. He says that right there, right? So letting, it, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, letting God tell us how to read and study His own Word, that's been our aim in this study. Not just to understand each minor prophet in his own time and in his own setting and his whatever, but also see how each one in his own way leads us a little bit further to, closer to Jesus and the Gospel, even before He came. Why would God do it that way? Why, why would He give... Why would... Uh, not only would Christ come, not only would He be revealed to us in the New Testament, but why would God ordain it such that there are incremental steps toward Him all through the Old Testament? There's probably a lot of ways to answer that question. Two, two uh, important ways would be so that for them, they would recognize Him when He came. And certainly would be without excuse if they didn't recognize Him. But even for us today, so that we might have all the more confidence in God and in the trustworthiness and truthfulness of His Word. We have the whole history. We have the whole story. We see the whole picture. And so we see not only the, the fulfillment, we see the promise that led to the fulfillment. And it instills confidence in us. So, not surprisingly, that's going to be our goal again this morning in Obadiah. Which, because it's so short, it's just 21 verses, it's going to take a little bit of thinking to see how it moves us forward to the Gospel. But I, I believe He does. So we're going to try to see it. Here's how I want us to think through it. First, I want to think a little bit about the, the background. That's going to be key here, the background of what's going on. We've said again and again through each one of these prophets that this may be the most important thing to, to, to place to start um, so that you have any inkling of what's being said when you read them. They're hard to understand just coming to them cold. It helps a little bit to know a little bit of the background so that Oh, that, it, that makes a little bit of sense. I can see why he said that, right? So background to Obadiah, who he was, when he was, where he was, why he was. 
Um, and then secondly, we're going to think about the judgment because this, this met all 21 verses of this is, is, is dominated uh, from beginning to end, this message of judgment against Edom. And we'll think about that. Um, and then finally, we'll think about the salvation that is foreshadowed in Obadiah, how he preached the gospel beforehand, as Paul would say it to the Galatians. So that's how we're going to map it out. So let's think first about the background to Obadiah, who he was, when he was, where he was, why he was. Unlike almost all the other prophets that we've studied so far, and even those still to come, there isn't a whole lot we can say about Obadiah, about who he was. I mean, we know his name was Obadiah. We know he was a prophet. That's about it. In that way, he's a little like the prophet Joel. Um, He was the very first minor prophet we studied back in May. Because Obadiah is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Um, And in his book, in the letter, he doesn't mention hardly any specifics about himself. So it's hard to even back into specifics about him. In most of the prophets, you know, they'll tell you their name. Sometimes they'll tell you who their daddy was. I mean, Jonah was like Jonah, the son of Amittai. And, and, and you can look them up and date them and all that. And they'll tell you who were kings when they prophesied. You know, either one under one particular king or under a string of kings. Who was king in Judah? Who was king in the north? I mean, they just give you all kinds of specifics. And you can look it up in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles and read all the background. You don't get any of that in Obadiah. None of it. Um, but as I thought about it, and, and, and studied it, and if you think about it carefully, the lack of all of that actually is a clue as to when he wrote it, at the very least. Um, why? Because why wouldn't Obadiah mention who was king when he was writing? Because there wasn't one. There wasn't one. There wasn't a king. Uh, because most likely, and most probably, he was writing just after Judah, his people, had been carried off into exile under Babylon. Right? That happened in 586 B.C. And his people, along with his king, were conquered and carried off into Babylon. Right? Uh, and so there was no king in Judah. I mean, it, what's he going to say? You know? Uh, they're, they're, they're a conquered people. They're, they're exiled. They're in a foreign place under a foreign people. There is no king in Judah. That would have put, by the way, Obadiah as being a contemporary of Jeremiah, the prophet. So, major and minor prophet there, for what it's worth. All right? Um, and, and it seems that's when he was writing. They're now in exile, in, in, in just freshly so, in Babylon. Not, we, we gather that not just because he doesn't mention a king, which would make sense if that's when he was writing, but also because of what he does say in the book. The bulk of this book is, is a written judgment from the Lord against Edom, against the Edomites. That's what he says in verse 1. Uh, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord, concerning Edom. And it seems the reason for this is because of what the Edomites did to Judah when the Babylonians came. So who were the Edomites? What did they do and why are they being judged? We'll come back to who they were in a little bit. Let's think first about what did they do and why, are they, why, is, why do they get a whole book of judgment against them? All right? Well, looking, down, looking in Obadiah, beginning in verse 10, verses 10 and 11, 
you start getting a glimpse of what the Edomites did. He says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So that's talking about when the Babylonians came. The Babylonians are the strangers and the foreigners that are referred to there. When, when strangers carried off their wealth. I mean, that we, we know just from other historical context in uh, Scripture. This, putting all this together, that's what, the, that's what the Babylonians did when they came. They carried off the wealth. Um, a couple of summers ago, I don't know, at some point we studied through Daniel. Uh, and I don't know if you, when, I know when we studied Daniel at the, the, the setting of the book of Daniel, we went back to like King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, I don't know if you remember, uh, when the Assyrians, the Assyrians were the power of the day. King Hezekiah of Judah was trying to shore up his defense against the Assyrians. And so who did he reach out to in that day? He reached out to the, the up and coming Babylonians and said, would you be my ally against the Assyrians? And how did he entice them to be his ally? He invited envoys from the Babylonians to come and he took them all through his kingdom and said, look at all of my wealth. Look at all of my kingdom. I could be a good ally to you. And the Babylonians said, cool, we'll be your ally. Knowing all that they had. And so when, when many years later the tables turned, they knew all that wealth was there, and they took all that wealth that was there. That's what he's saying here. When these strangers came and carried off Judah's wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, the Babylonians, he tells the Edomites, you were like one of them. You were just like the Babylonians to us. What did they do? What did they do? Well, you get a glimpse in Obadiah that's confirmed in other prophets. What did they do when the Babylonians came? Look, look for example, uh, the, the 12 through 14. This gives you a glimpse of what the Edomites did when the Babylonians came. Verse 12 said they, they gloated in that day, right? They rejoiced over the people of Judah that they were being captured. Um, verse 13, they gloated over his disaster. Here it gets worse though. The end of verse 13. Do not loot his wealth. That's what they did. As the Babylonians were looting, the Edomites were looting. And look at verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads and cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Do you get the picture that's painting? The Edomites were a neighboring people to, to Judah, just to the south and east. And as the Babylonians came, some Jews were trying to flee. Some, some, some of the people of Judah were trying to flee. And who was there to stop them from fleeing? The Edomites. Would, it says, do not stand at the crossroad to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors. So they would capture fleeing Jews and hand them over to the Babylonians. That's what they did. And that's confirmed in other... Um, in other uh, prophets, for example, the prophet Ezekiel says in chapter 25, because Edom acted revengefully. I'll, I'll, 
I'll, I'll give some context as why Ezekiel says it that way in just a minute. Not just acted evilly, <laughs> revengefully. Hmm. Against the house of Judah has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Specifically, how did they take vengeance? Chapter 35 of Ezekiel. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. The time. They gave them over. Just like it says here. They were handing over the survivors. If people were trying to flee, they were kicking them back into play. That's what they were doing. And it's saying, when the Babylonians came up, the people of Judah were helping the Babylonians. And... and, and turning over those Jews who were trying to flee. Not only that, but Obadiah tells us that once the Babylonians had carried the Jews off into exile, the Edomites moved into their villages and were wicked people. He says in verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink. Well, it goes, as you have drunk on my holy mountain. It implies that the Edomites, when the, when the Jews were gone, the Edomites moved into their villages, even into Jerusalem, even on the Temple Mount itself, and, and had drunken revelry. As you have drunk on my holy mountain. And it's for all this that God is delivering this judgment through Obadiah on the Edomites. Well, who in the world were the Edomites? Right? <laughs> Who were they? That, that's pretty bad stuff that they're doing. And, I, and remember that, that interesting word from Ezekiel? You acted revengefully against? Well, who were they? There's an interesting play on words again in verses 10 and 11 that just give you a clue. Look there again. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. All right, Jacob here is a, is a figurative way that he's referring to Judah. And in front of him is Jacob. And he says in some way the Edomites were their brothers. Their brother. All right. Because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof. On the day that strangers, as opposed to brothers... Strangers as opposed to brothers carried off his wealth and foreigners, again as opposed to brothers, uh, entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. So Obadiah says the Edomites were brothers to the people of Judah. And he refers to them as Judah as Jacob. That ought to, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that ought to ring bells. You think Jacob, you think the Old Testament Jacob. And Jacob had a brother, famous brother, Jacob and Esau. That's what, that's what this is alluding to um, when he calls Edomites brothers to Jacob. Jacob's brother Esau. In fact, Esau's already mentioned twice in this passage. In verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged. Verse 9, every man from Mount Esau will be cut off to slaughter, by slaughter. So, do a little history. Because this didn't happen in a vacuum. In Genesis 25, you have the story of, of Jacob and Esau and uh, Esau giving up his birthright for a bowl of stew. Remember that? And we read in Genesis 25, 30, 
Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. So Esau's name was also called Edom, and all his descendants, all Esau's descendants were the Edomites. So think of this. So Jacob and all his descendants were Israel or Judah, right? Esau, all his descendants were Edomites. There's a history there, you know? And in the, in the end of cha- uh, chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 34, it says Esau despised his birthright. Esau didn't care anything for God, didn't care anything for the promises of God. Uh, and, and despising his birthright was despising the Lord. Jacob was the one blessed by the Lord even from birth. God favored Jacob over Esau and said in verse 23 that the older, that be Esau, shall serve the younger, that be Jacob. Meaning Esau and his descendants would serve, be subservient to Jacob and his descendants. There was a long time, and if you read Genesis, there was a long time where the, the original Jacob and Esau were at odds with each other. Many years later, many chapters later, they do sort of mend the fences a little bit. But not much could be said for their descendants. Um, the Edomites, like I said, just lived just, just south and east. Uh, and they were, they were in constant conflict with Judah. Uh, and over the years, what God had said, the older shall serve the younger, that, that came to pass. That Judah ruled over, Israel ruled over the Edomites. Um, first King, first Samuel 14, 47 says that King Saul, the very first king, it's not going to be on the screen, the very first king of Israel, it says Saul uh, fought against the Edomites and routed them. Second Samuel 8, verses 11 through 14 says that King David subdued them. Uh, and they actually became his servants. The Edomites did. 1 Kings twenty two forty seven says that, that Israel actually put one of their puppet kings over the Edomites. So there's a history there. And it's not always a good history. Uh, Israel and Judah are not squeaky clean. Like, uh, and, and the Bible's very real and grit, gritty about that. Very often... When Israel and Judah ruled over the Edomites, um, they were very cruel. First Kings eleven fifteen says that when Solomon was king, he struck down every male in Edom. I guess he left some kids. Second Chronicles twenty five twelve says that when Amaziah was king, the men of Judah captured another ten thousand Edomites alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were dashed to pieces. So there's a history there. And it's not hard to see why Judah themselves were being judged by the Lord if this is the way they are. Wicked. But it's also not hard to see when, that when the time came that God brought the Babylonians against Judah, the Edomites were all too happy to help the Babylonians and to revel in their misfortune. That's the background of what's going on behind what Obadiah is saying. Judah had been judged by the Lord, and rightly so, using the Babylonians, but he wasn't utterly forsaking them. 
In fact, he had already prophesied through Jeremiah that when the Babylonians came and took them into exile, that would only be for 70 years. And then it's over. They'll come back. The Lord hasn't forsaken them. God wasn't giving Judah up forever, but it was the desire of the Edomites that he was. They didn't worship the Lord anyway. They just wanted to be on the good side of the powerful Babylonians, have a new place for their parties, even the Temple Mount, and rejoice in, in Judah's sufferings. A couple of things you could take away from all that. Because that, that, that might not be exciting to you at all, but all Scripture is God-breathed, and so it's important. I guess an application, a couple of applications would be, one, when we profess to know Christ and follow Christ, but we don't act like it. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised that the world would take notice and rightly fault us for it. You know, Judah were the people of God, and they were throwing 10,000 men off a cliff and dashing them to pieces. Can we bear the name of Christ? And when we don't act like it, uh, we, we ought to expect uh, the disdain of the world. The second thing, though, would be when we profess to know Christ and follow Christ, even when we do act like it. <laughs> We shouldn't be surprised that we face hardship and persecution and disdain from the world. Uh, we shouldn't be, Jesus said so. We shouldn't be surprised that the world rejoices at the suffering of Christians and rejoices at the hardship of the church and the downfall of the church and the struggling of the church and even the disappearance of the church. Just reading the other day, somebody reflecting on the phrase, it's the early phrase, one of the early church fathers, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in some ways, the per persecution has been fuel for the growth and expansion of the church. But in some places of the world, persecution has stamped out the church. I mean, you, you walk where Paul walked in a lot of places, and there's no church to be found. And there are places, I mean... Goodness, I mean, there, there are places where persecution has seemingly, seemingly stamped out the church and the world rejoices. That doesn't take anything by surprise. That doesn't take scripture by surprise. Here's how God talks about this, this reality. This, in Revelation chapter 11, God gave, in, in the vision that he gave to John, God talked about this. Um, there will be times when the church looks dead in the world and the world will rejoice over it. Here's how he says it. And when they have finished their testimony, that is the believers, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, on the believers, on the church, and conquer them and kill them. Then their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw him. So Jesus said, Persecution and hardship, expect it, expect it. It's, it's not surprising that the, the, the church, I mean, the world rejoices when the church suffers. I mean, here in, in Revelation, God has said, 
they're, they're pictured as rejoicing over the suffering of the church and even making merry and exchanging presents because the church was apparent, appeared dead. That, this, the same, this the same that Edom felt toward Judah when the Babylonians came. They made a covenant with Babylon to help them. That's why it says in verse 7, your allies have driven you to your border. Um, literally, your allies means the men of your covenant. They made a covenant with Babylon to help them and aided Babylon in capturing Judah and they rejoiced when they were gone, just like in Revelation. But just like in Revelation, after a certain amount of time passes, God is not faithless, He's faithful. The Lord raises His people to life again. And it already promised Judah, like I said, in 70 years they would, they would return. He wasn't giving them up. Despite the plans of Babylon and the wishes of Edom, the Lord took notice. He raises up His prophets to bring His word. Obadiah to bring it to Edom. So let's think about this judgment that He brings. The book opens with this assurance that even as He brought... Uh, God brought the Babylonians in judgment against Judah. He's taken notice of the wrong that Edom did to them and will judge them for it. He says in verses 5 through 7, this is, what his, this is the judgment he's going to bring to Edom. It'll be, it'll be complete. He says in verses 5 through 7, If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. He starts off by talking how, about how, how completely they will be judged by the Lord. He's basically saying, if somebody broke into your house... Do you think they would literally take everything in your house or just steal what they wanted? They would steal what they wanted. They wouldn't take every literal thing out of your house. If, if uh, people walked through your, your, your field and picked some of your fruit, do you think they would pick it clean or do you think they would eat only what they wanted? Yeah, they would eat what they wanted. They wouldn't take your whole crop. But the Lord is saying, when I come through, I'm not leaving anything. I'm not leaving anything. It's going to be complete. And then he tells them how the judgment would come. That it, it, they would basically self-destruct. The very people that they trusted in, the people they made a deal with, the people they made a covenant with, namely the Babylonians, those same Babylonians would turn on them. That's why he says, your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. And it would happen. It would happen shortly, 33 years later, in 553, the Babylonians did to the Edomites exactly what they had done to Judah. It's why, you know, Obadiah tells them in verses 12 to 14, don't, don't, don't boast or gloat over Judah because the same thing's about to happen to you. Then notice what Obadiah does in verse 15. Look how verse 15 starts. This whole thing has been about Edom. But he says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. All the nations. This is the Lord saying that Edom and what happens to Edom is just going to be a prelude to, to his judgment of Babylon in the near future in due time. And his judgment of Babylon would just be a prelude to his judgment of all the nations who oppose him on the last day. 
That's not just an Old Testament promise. That's all over the New Testament. That's the promise of 1 Corinthians 15, 25 of Christ, the resurrected Christ. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That same chapter, Revelation 11, where you had that, that whole vision of them rejoicing over the apparently dead church, at the end of that same chapter, you know, after three and a half years, he raises them to life. At the end of that same chapter, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. It's ironic that Obadiah is a book of the Lord's judgment against Judah's enemies when Judah itself is being judged by the Lord. But God's judgment of Judah was different. God's judgment of, of Judah was more a, a, a chastisement, a, a cleansing, a, yeah, a sifting. He, he, he was bringing them through it to repentance and restoration. God will fully and finally judge uh, those who oppose Christ and his people, despite how it may appear at present. And he says in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near, is near upon all nations. And, and some may think it odd that the Lord said this so long ago. 2,500 years ago he said this. The day of the Lord is near. 2,500 years ago. Near? But that word near doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen soon. It just means it's imminent. It means it, it, is, it, is, it could happen at any moment. That's what it says. When it says the day of the Lord is near, it doesn't mean it's about to happen. It means it could happen at any moment. There's a difference. Now, that, that's what we take away from this. Stay faithful to Christ, knowing that His judgment could come at any moment, and trust His word despite what outward appearances look like. And in the end, Obadiah's book, we see glimpses of the salvation that was coming. He says in verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. He promises to, receive, to save a, a remnant by faith, whom he will make holy. And in verses 19 to 20, he promises to bring them back out of exile, to repossess their land, but not as an end in itself. The earthly promised land was never the goal. It was always pointing forward to something more eternal. And interestingly, the final verse of the book says, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Saviors will come. Deliverers will come. Preservers shall come. God would indeed send men to rule and govern the, the, so the city could be rebuilt and so the walls could be rebuilt and so the temple could be rebuilt. But they would all culminate in the coming of the Son of God to be the ultimate Savior of His people who was coming. And when He came, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He's the one who would make His remnant holy. His is the kingdom to which we belong and to which all nations will come and be judged. And that's the gospel according to Obadiah. Let's pray.